I'm Robert and I'm Chris and we're the Film Flamers and we thought we'd try something a little bit different this time instead of giving you a good movie we're giving you a crappy one (laughs) let's let them decide what's crappy and what's not (laughs) sorry they caught me off guard (laughs) (laughs) just like we did last year for Pride Month, we tried to pick a movie that's sort of, you know, seen as queer horror, queer horror adjacency. And um, as you recall, last year we did Stranger by the Lake and Cruising. And this month we are going to be covering the horror adjacent comedy, Psycho Beach Party. That's right. Psycho Beach Party is a year 2000 comedy horror film based on the stage play of the same name, directed by Robert Lee King. Charles Bush wrote both the original play and the screenplay. As the title suggests, Psycho Beach Party is set in 1962 Malibu Beach and is a parody of the 1950s, really late 1950s and early 1960s, like psychodramas, 1960s beach movies, and the 1980s slashers. The film stars Lauren Ambrose, Thomas Gibson, Nicholas Brendan, Matt Kieslar, Beth Broderick, and Amy Adams. The play was originally titled Gidget Go Psychotic, but the title was changed due to concerns about copyrights. Oh, I would have loved that title. I know, right? It's better. <laughs> In the original 1987 off-off-Broadway production, Charles Bush played the role of Chicklet. For the film, he added the role of Detective Monica Stark because he felt that he couldn't play a 16-year-old girl anymore. He said, While I can still manage, with the aid of a sympathetic cameraman, to play a sophisticated 25, 16 would be a stretch. <laughs> so there goes my uh, fun fact. Oh, did you put that in there? <laughs> that was my one fun fact. What? <laughs> Are you serious? <laughs> I should have read the beginning of the <laughs> description. <laughs> Great. But before we get too deep into the perfect wave, this is Psycho Beach Party. I guess we are the only ones watching the movie. These guys have only one thing on their minds. Want a wiener? There are some prized tomatoes in that tin can. I could feel it in my nuts. You and your nuts. You kids think you own this beach. Think it's a teenage world. Well, you're dead wrong. I'll help you with that. Have I been acting strange lately? Who do you have to f- to get a hot dog in this dump? What? A surfer chick with a split personality. Uh, should I unpack my bongos? I intend to unpack mine. <laughs> All right, guys, come on. That's that's enough. Ah! Ah! What the hell is that? Ah! Help me. I hate to say this, but I think our little chipper may be the butcher at Malibu Beach. Strange. The victim had only one testicle stuffed in his mouth. Well, that's because he only had one. Plenty of meat, but only one potato. A little sex. I believe this is what you young people call it. A gangbang. A little sin. I've been a bad boy. Bad boys get specked. A little psycho. Party till you drop. Dead. I hope you put some Bactine on that scratch. Psycho Beach Party. That's the most exciting story idea I've heard in years. At a Los Angeles drive-in, friends Florence, played by Lauren Ambrose, and Berdine, are watching a horror double feature of movies starring Bettina Barnes, played by Kimberly Davies. Florence can't help but notice that she and Berdine are the only ones watching the movie, while the other kids are making out. A few cars down, surfer bum and college dropout Starcat, played by Nicholas Brendan, notices Marvel Ann, played by Amy Adams, in the car next to him. She notices as well, and asks a friend about him. 
Florence heads to the concession stand for a hot dog and runs into Lars, played by Matt Kessler, the foreign exchange student living with her. They talk briefly before she goes to place her order. When the clerk at the counter attempts to serve a more attractive girl before her, Florence spots a circular sign and slips into another personality, Anne Bowman, who is far more brash and sexual than Florence. At that moment, a woman left in a car alone by her date has her throat slit, which causes quite the commotion at the drive-in. The following day, Florence and Berdine are stopped by police captain Monica Stark, played by Charles Bush, who asks them some questions about the drive-in murder, but during the questioning, Florence's mother, Ruth, played by Beth Broderick, pulls up and angrily ends the conversation. Desperate to hook up with Starcat, Marveland convinces Berdine and Florence to drive out to Malibu Beach, where he and his friends surf. Starcat's surfing game consists of Junior, who suffers from the heartbreak of psoriasis, TJ, a teen who claims to have the hairy balls of a man, and Yo-Yo and Provolone, two friends who are obviously a little more than just that. While at the beach, Florence embraces the idea of surfing and asks the guys to teach her. They refuse to let a girl surf, but she's determined, so she heads to the shack of the great Kanaka, played by Thomas Gibson, the leader of the group, to convince him to teach her. At first he also refuses, but when Florence sees circles in his shack, she slips back into Ann Bowman's personality. She hints at being a dominatrix and teases Kanaka with S&M. When Florence returns to her own personality, Kanaka agrees to give her surf lessons and hopes that he will again meet Ann Bowman. Florence slowly starts to be accepted by the group, but in the process begins avoiding Berdine. They give her the nickname Chicklet because they say she is not quite a woman yet, at least not one worth dating. Florence learns of a planned luau happening in a few weeks and decides that she wants to attend. One afternoon, Junior sticks around on the beach to surf alone, and Florence spots two swirls of sand, which again makes her become Ann Bowman. Days later, Junior's body parts are found on the beach, identifiable by his psoriasis. Captain Stark again shows up and is surprised to find Florence at yet another crime scene. While surfing, the group spots a woman come out of an abandoned beach house and run inside. The house is a local legend, and everyone tells stories of how a deranged child killed his family there many years before. Later, the group meets the new tenant, Bettina Barnes, the popular horror actress. Berdine professes her adoration for her and her work and soon begins working as her assistant. When Bettina learns of the urban legends surrounding her new home, the group plans a sleepover slash seance to get to the bottom of the mystery. Florence's mother, however, will not allow her daughter to attend because she respects order and normalcy above all else. She will not have her daughter hanging out with actresses and beach trash. As her mother angrily tells her this, Florence notices some circles on her apron and slips into yet another personality, this one a young African-American woman. When Florence comes to, her mother, obviously worried about her daughter's well-being, allows her to attend the sleepover. That night, TJ begins flirting with Bettina and they agree to meet in the bathroom for a quickie. Florence and Starcat make a truce and agree to stop squabbling so much and be friends. While they share a hug, Florence again slips into Ann Bowman's persona and Berdine learns of Florence's issues. While TJ waits in the bathroom for his rendezvous, the murderer enters and kills him. Captain Stark arrives on the scene and notices that he had a testicle stuffed into his mouth, but only one, because TJ had only one nut. Captain Stark begins to deduce that every person murdered suffers from an affliction in some way. The girl at the drive-in had a hair lip. Junior suffered from the heartbreak of psoriasis, and TJ had only one ball. While she is policing about, Kanaka stares at her and has a memory of when they were partners on the police force, and lovers. The pair broke up because Kanaka wanted the family, and Stark wanted to climb the ladder at the force. Back at Kanaka's shack, Florence again switches to Ann Bowman's persona and gets a little randy with him, and he figures out that circles are the thing that sets her off. Meanwhile, at a diner in the city, Bettina and the group meet for lunch. A bitchy girl from school who happens to be in a wheelchair makes a snide comment to the group before leaving and upsets Bettina who leaves for air. The young woman is decapitated outside moments before Florence, as Ann Bowman, enters the restaurant, then snaps back into her own personality. She confides to Berdine that she thinks she may be the killer. Marvel Ann, fed up with Starcat's future prospects, breaks up with him, and he begins to flirt with Florence. Captain Stark has a laundry list of suspects, however. Florence, of course, but also her mother Ruth and Bettina Barnes. She follows some clues about a car seen at the murders and deduces that the car is registered to Ruth Forrest. 
Back at the Forest household, Ruth has forbidden Florence from attending the Luau, even though Lars, the exchange student, asked her to reconsider. He heads to the Luau in Ruth's car that he has been driving off and on during his stay. Florence, determined, sneaks out and heads to the party anyway. Everyone is there, including Bettina, when Florence arrives. A rival surf gang crashes and tells Kanaka that they need a metaphorical virgin sacrifice, and Florence agrees to participate. While they prepare for the sacrifice, Yo-Yo finally professes his love to Provolone, and the two share a kiss. As the sacrifice begins, the partiers begin to dance in a circle around Florence, despite Kanaka's pleas for them to stop. Of course, this causes Florence to slip into Anne Bowman's personality, and she gives a tirade about the weakness of men. Ruth and Captain Stark arrive, and Florence snaps back to herself with the help of Stark Hat. Using everything he learned from psych classes, he hypnotizes Florence, and she remembers her mother having a series of boyfriends and neglecting her own children, Florence and her younger brother. Her mother called herself Anne Bowman, and Florence accidentally killed her brother as a child. Captain Stark announces that Ruth is the murderer and arrests her. Lars offers to drive the very distraught Florence home. Her friends, however, start to put the pieces of the puzzle together and race after them. Lars loses his accent in the car as he tells Florence that he is shocked that she isn't the all-American girl he thought she was. He always thought she was so normal. He explains that he isn't Lars, foreign exchange student, but actually Larry, the boy who killed his family, who he says were all different from everyone else, just like the others he's killed. Florence escapes the car and flees to the deserted drive-in with Larry in hot pursuit. He follows her to the top of the movie screen as her friends arrive. Way above ground, Larry closes in on Florence, but she starts to cycle through her many personalities which catches him off guard. Captain Stark has climbed up as well. She shoots him and he falls to his death. Safely on the ground, Stark reunites with Kanaka and Stark had embraces Florence. The camera pans away from their embrace to show an institutionalized Florence getting prepared for some shock therapy. She exclaims to those around her that they were just in the dream that she was having, but the shock therapy begins. And the camera pans away to show a drive-in theater playing the movie about Florence getting shock therapy. A teenage couple in a car talk about how the movie is based on a local urban legend, but they're safe because Ann Bowman has been locked away forever. Suddenly, Florence, a.k.a. Ann Bowman, appears from the back seat to stab the teens to death. The end. Nice basket. (laughs) (laughs) Fancy phrases. And a nice basket. (laughs) Well, uh, that's uh, that's Psycho Beach Party in a nutshell. It's... um, I don't know. It's there's a lot going on for like a, a comedy movie, and it was a, a difficult synopsis to write, especially because there's like no synopsis online to even help guide my way through it. <laughs> so this is why no one has attempted online to write this fucking synopsis. So Psycho Beach Party played the Sundance Film Festival in January of 2000 and was released in theaters on August 4th, 2000 on seven screens, bringing in twenty one thousand dollars. Ultimately, the film would gross about 268000 against a reported budget of $1.5 million. The film never received a wide release and was released on DVD in April of 2001. So Psycho Beach Party holds a 55% rating on Rotten Tomatoes with an audience score of higher at 66. Uh, however, there is no site consensus. Isn't that odd? I mean, like, I don't... Well, I mean, from some of the movies that are kind of a little bit below the radar, or at least like the mainstream radar, that, you know, came out before Rotten Tomatoes was a thing, I feel like there's a lot of consensuses that are missing. This isn't the first time that's happened. Oh, okay. Uh, Stephen Holden of the New York Times praised the film, stating that it accomplishes what no stage production could. By assiduously copying the look and sound of those 60s movies, the wriggling title sequences, the twangy surf music, and the gawky gee whiz acting style, it definitively skewers the false innocence of American pop culture on the eve of the counterculture deluge. Wow. (laughs) Someone's getting paid per syllable. (laughs) I know. I mean, did Dickens write that (laughs) review? That reviewer gave me a Dickensian proclivity. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so praising the strong women and quotes of the film, Bob Graham of the San Francisco Chronicle wrote that Bush as Monica Stark captures the woman alone in the world toughness of the roles played by the stars he loves 
It goes beyond camp. He is sincere. But Dennis Lim of The Village Voice gave the film a negative review. He concluded that the film is an awkward combination of garish sect decoration and muffled humor, and that the viewer is left to ponder the number of levels on which this counts as a pointless exercise, a parody of parodic movies, a deconstruction of transparent genres, and a self-negatingly knowing example of camp. Hmm. Yeah. Well, let's let's get into that a little bit. But first, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about Charles Bush? So Charles Bush is like a, an avant-garde film filmmaker and playwright. He got his start like in the in the seventies and early eighties, and he really found his footing in like the Lower East Side, like Greenwich Village area of New York, where he produced these really like campy plays, right? Yep. Um. And some of them found so much popularity that they you were played in like Provincetown and things like that, right? Where people would flock to see them on weekends and like cabarets and such and such. He did shows like like the Lesbian Daughters of Sodom and other things before he got to Psycho Beach Party, right? And a lot of his work was done with him in drag, and he really sort of created this drag persona. A lot of his work is sort of based on the same things that Psycho Beach Party is. So the, the films from the 40s, 50s, and 60s that he enjoyed so much. And I think that really he created his drag persona to be like one of those like 40s, 50s, 60s leading ladies. And he continues to write plays. Um, he had a play written called Die, Mommy, Die, which also became a movie mm-hmm. in like 2003, 2004. And um, he was nominated for a Tony several years ago for a play that he wrote he wrote the book of the um boy george musical taboo right so charles bush is he's sort of a gay icon at least in the theater world and he really you know makes no apologies for the work that he likes to produce right i would say he's certainly a new york icon too oh yeah i mean for real so i mean he lived in new york as a child with his with his aunt and he just like created all these things and had a love of film and a love of plays and a love of the city and i mean to me i i look at charles bush as as really like a really early drag icon you know right around the time of like divine Mm. and things like that and so like it's it's important to talk about someone like that especially during pride month i feel sure and uh, actually, when I had my internship in New York, I did go to Greenwich Village and I did go to an off-off Broadway reading of a play and I did meet him. Um, of course, I hadn't watched Psycho Beach Party, which had just come out a, a year or two before that because I was there kind of post 9-11, a year or two after 9-11. So I was there in like 2003, I think, actually. And so Psycho Beach Party okay. came out about three years before that. But he, he was really good and I and I didn't know who he, who he really was um, at the time, but I, I spoke with him after the after the play and... and uh, people were talking to him about psycho beach party. It was really interesting. And also funny is like, while I was there and I was only there for like, I don't know, a couple of weeks, I saw Sarah Jessica Parker on the set of sex in the city. And I also saw Nev Campbell at a bar when the New York blackout happened. Cause I was there during that week. Um, and of course you were there for however many years and you didn't meet a single celebrity. <laughs> and I was there for like, well, I mean a couple, I mean, so like I saw, um, Paul Walker came into one of my blockbusters that I worked oh, at. Yeah, you saw and so did Eliza Dishku. Yeah. yeah. And so like I completely fangirled out about that. Like I mean, like there are some stories about that Eliza Dushku walking into Blockbuster story that I just cannot tell to public. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So just think, you know. But um other than that, I saw Julianne Moore eating at a restaurant on a patio one day while I was walking by. Mm-hmm. And um I had to like look several times to see if it was her because it just did not look like her at all. And I was just like, eesh, I really do think that's Julianne Moore, but she, she didn't look so good that day. I think. Well, I don't know. I just thought, I thought it was funny that I was there only for like three, you know, like maybe three weeks that I saw like <laughs> three different. Yeah. I don't know why it was. I mean, like I lived there for, you know, well over, I mean, about, just about two years and there was like a dearth of celebrities. I think I saw more celebrities in Austin than I did living yeah. in New York. Which is stupid. But I'm super jealous that you got to like meet and, you know, talk to or at least like hear other people talk to Charles Bush. Because, I mean, I would just love to meet that man. I do. I really like like early <clears throat> drag before drag was. I mean, drag is so popular right now. 
And it's producing so many drag celebrities thanks to RuPaul's Drag Race, you know, which is a really good queer inclusive show. Mm-hmm. Um, but back when I was like in my late teens and early 20s, like I really enjoyed drag queens like Varla Jean Merman or Coco Peru. And I watched movies like, um, you know, Girls Would Be Go Out Girls or Die Mommy Die or Psycho Beach Party. And I just I really enjoyed like the the campy aspect to these movies and the camp qualities of drag. And this is something that I look for when I watch drag today. Mm-hmm. You know, they're just my favorite style of drag queen. So you it's know? it's interesting that you brought up camp, um, especially after that reviews that it was like kind of self-negatingly camp. Do you feel like this movie is uh-huh. camp? I do, right? And so like I was trying to think of like what the definition of camp is, right? Because people will always say that's camp, right? Or that's so campy or question like, but is it camp, right? I think if you remember a couple years ago, like the, the Met Gala's theme was, was camp and people were showing up in these, you know, garments and everybody online was like tearing them to shreds and be like, what is it camp though? You know? And so I think that most people don't even know. So I looked it up. Right. And so what I found about camp as an adjective says deliberately exaggerated and theatrical behavior or style. And another one went so far as to say it is um, used to describe an activity or someone's behavior or appearance. So it's funny or obviously ridiculously funny. Hmm. So the way I always thought of camp was things that aren't supposed to be funny or weren't intentionally funny are now funny or for whatever reason are funny. So like you might go back and watch like a 1950s monster movie where, you know, all the acting is just over the top or something else. And and that might become camp um, versus what I think of as like over the top intentional would be like on the spoof side of parody. Right. So I feel like parody can't really be camp because it's such it's intentionally supposed to you know it's intentionally trying to be funny um and to bring a you know hysterical aspect to something that was taken more seriously before or you know spoofing on something else like like an entire genre um i was wondering if parodies can even be camp and i think they can especially like this is a good example where half of it is really good hilarious parody and the other half it kind of falls flat at least to me and becomes camp because of that so it's parody and camp all in one and i feel like this is a good example of that (laughs) i mean yeah it's so i think that despite having an actual definition online that people can look at which in itself is a definition that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me i think that everyone sort of like has their own idea of what camp is right and it's just become one of those things that it's hard to put your finger on, right? When I think of camp, I really think about John Waters, especially. So we have movies like Pink Flamingos, right? Polyester or in, you know, to, to the 80s, like Crybaby. And I think that a lot of people would consider that camp because it's so like over the top and theatrical, which a lot of those movies that you were talking about from the 50s were, you know, and I, I really think that the the term camp, or at least the, the word as an adjective, was created because of those movies that you just described. Yeah. So does that well, make yeah. sense? And then this yeah. movie in particular is trying to kind of be a parody of Gidget from 1959, which inspired the main character in this in this film, as well as uh, Psycho from 1960, just a year later, and then of course Beach Party from 1963 mm-hmm. so you can see where the title came from it's not you know gidget goes psycho or whatever but psycho and beach party um and all of these were very earnest you know approaches to their genres at the time weren't really meant to be funny in and of themselves right i, I don't think and so looking back of course all of them are campy so a lot of people think parts of psycho are camp you know at this point uh, because they're just so saturated in, in pop culture. And so a lot of this is just like rife, uh, you know, for for a parody to kind of come in and, and swoop in and, and do what it does. And that's what this movie attempts to do, I think. And I have never read the stage play. You know, obviously I've never seen it. I know that it's still produced today around the world in certain places. But I, I kind of like to imagine that he took as much as he could from his play when he wrote the script for the movie right Mm -hmm. i don't i don't like to think that it's too different but i also have never seen or heard like dramatic readings of his work so i mean when you were there was 
the play that you guys listened to, the dramatic reading of, very similar in style to Psycho Beach Party? No, not at all. This was like, um, it was hilarious, but it was also kind of drama, right? So it was like um, letters back and forth from like old, like like high school lovers, sweet, high school sweethearts, and as they grow up and as they go throughout their lives. And uh, he was playing the girl part, and then another actor was playing, of course, the guy part. And it was just interesting to kind of see it through that lens. And so, and the way he would read it and some of the things, it added a little bit more dimension as someone that was, you know, um, you know, portraying themselves as a woman. And I think that the play that you're talking about is the one that he was eventually nominated for a Tony for, because I know that he had one play that sort of made it onto Broadway eventually after years, right? And I, I really think that's the one that, you know, got him that nomination. It's literally just two people sitting on stools on the stage and, and reading back these letters back and forth. And so, I mean, but I, I know that he, like he has many different styles and things like that that he works with. But yeah. I mean, I think that at the end of the day, he will probably remembered most for some of these like, quote unquote, campy stage plays that he did, you know. And I know yeah. that, I mean, there is still a section of the queer community that really enjoys that style. Right. And And I do from time to time when it's done well, you know, or, you know, it's funny. But I know that through our like topics or, or through our conversation about this movie off mic, you had some movies that you thought, you know, sort of nailed the tone of camp or, you know, parody better. Yeah. I feel like, I feel like this movie is really does a good job in places with certain actors and things like that. And then, you know, and it really nails that like kind of Gidget beach party kind of vibe, you know, and, and especially how it shows them surfing and dancing mm-hmm. and a lot of the other things, but there's a lot of other characters that are kind of anachronistic to that, right. They're kind of, outside of that and you could almost say that that's trying to provide a contrast but i'm not so sure it's a little bit messy it's like is this trying to provide a contrast a la like adam's family or brady bunch movie where the whole brady bunch is stuck in like the the 60s and 70s and everyone else is current current age and that provides you know a source of comedy i don't think so i think that it's just inconsistently kind of inconsistently done in this movie. I don't think they nailed the tone a hundred percent. Like I said earlier, I think that half of it is hilarious and the other half kind of falls flat. Um, like it almost did translate as well from the stage to the screen or something else, depending on what they were trying to do. I also think of movies like Austin powers, you know, again, with that contrast of this person that's stuck in this time period, you know, compared to like plopped in this fish out of water with everywhere else. And I'm also thinking of like what we do in the shadows, which is also, you know, kind of fish out of water contrast type of situation with all of this parodies of the different vampires from all these different times, you know? And I, th- I just feel like if they had nailed the tone more consistently, like as soon as Nicholas Brendan goes on there, I just think, I don't think it was the choice of the director. I think it was the lacking of the actor of being able to do anything other than be Nicholas Brendan, you know? I think that's just probably a victim of its own budget, a victim of its own resources that was able to get still. It's incredibly impressive the cast that they did manage to get especially if you see like um you know people that would later go on to do huge things like amy adams of course i love a lot of her early work i loved her and uh you know uh dropped it gorgeous gorgeous. which is kind of another parody (laughs) you know in a way and it's completely it doesn't provide contrast because everyone is in that world you know and that's how you can nail a tone within a within a world and uh you know, you just have to make it consistent, you know, and I feel like this is that's something that this this movie didn't really succeed at. I think that someone even go so far as to call Drop Dead Gorgeous Camp as well, right? If we're going to like throw that adjective around a little bit, right? You know, and so, I mean, I I really, I, I understand where you're coming from and I, I completely agree with you. I think that this movie sort of like has problems in its execution, Right. And I, I think that like watching the stage play may have been an entirely different experience. Right. And trying to, to move this from the stage to the screen creates a series of problems, especially since the play itself debuted in like 1987. And by the time it was created into a movie, you know, being made in the late 90s and released in like 2000. Right. That, that's a huge span of difference. Well, no, I, I completely agree. But there's also other problems because we're also looking at it through that lens of time having passed. Like you're saying like there's a, a length of time, a stretch of time between when this was written and when it got into the screen. And now there's a huge length of time between when it got to the screen and us watching it now today. 
right? And so True. we're able to kind of see it with different eyes than we would have seen it in the year 2000. And I think you were mentioning something um, offline about that. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I watched this movie when it was released on DVD. I mean, I worked at a Blockbuster and, you know, things would come in early and we could rent them. And I mean, not only that, but I just had like all these movies at my disposal when I worked for that company. And so when this movie was delivered to us and I was like, I have no idea what this even is, you know, but if I see a movie with Psycho in the title and then possibly Beach Party, I'm just <laughs> like, okay, I'm down for this. Right. And when I watched that movie at 20, 21, I, um, I loved it. I thought it was hilarious and, you know, and campy and there was lots of drag and it, it felt like there was some queer representation going on in that movie. And, you know, I, I watched it several times when I was young, I showed it to people and then I sort of left it by the wayside and I had all these fond memories of how funny psycho beach party was right. Mm -hmm. Like I even put it on our top 10 horror comedies episode list. Right. Because I mean, this movie makes me laugh every time that I watch it, you know, but, you know, watching it for the recording of this podcast episode, like, I mean, some things have changed for me. I was taken aback by the way that queer people were represented in this movie, aside from Charles Bush. I mean, obviously he's giving a queer performance, you know, as, as a woman. Right. But I mean, like the way that they treat like the, the two gay characters in this movie, Provolone and Yo-Yo is, uh, I mean, kind of off-putting for me, and I can't believe that I thought that it was so good at the time, right? So we have to think about, there's a scene in the movie, and these two characters have been flirting with each other, like, through the entirety of the movie, to, like, great effect. Like, when they are, they're, they're always wrestling with each other, there are some times when they start wrestling and, like, their friends start squirting oil all over them and things like that. They have these real gratuitous moments in the movie. And then, you know, it finally starts to realize or dawn on these characters that they may be gay. There's a scene where Yo-Yo is being talked to by Captain Stark and she's asking, are there any differences in you that might cause a killer to come after you? And he's like, well, sometimes, you know, I have these feelings about my friend Provolone and he storms out of the room. And then at the end of the movie, we finally get to see them, you know, sort of profess their love for each other and share a kiss. Meanwhile, Provolone has like dealt with constipation the whole time in the movie, you know, I guess, which is a joke. And whenever they share a kiss, like his body, like feels the need to release. Right. He's like, Oh, we just kissed and it's a good moment. But finally, after like, you know, an hour and a half, I have to go take a shit. And I'm like, as a 40 year old gay man watching this, I'm like, it's kind of hard for me to believe that I would find this to be such an inclusive movie back in 2000. Right. Mm -hmm. But I guess it's not that hard to believe because there wasn't that much representation going on in horror movies or any movie for that matter, as far as like the queer community goes. Yeah. And I know this movie was, you know, pre-written as a play long before it was filmed, but I still really kind of thought that they could be a little bit more, you know, open and brave with that representation if they were going to go that route. I know they were trying to go, you know, kind of Gidget 1950s, 1960s, kind of, you know, suddenly last summer under the surface with it, but <laughs> they, they, they didn't. And that's another thing. It's just, it's just like kind of a half step you know, forward and, and then kind of making fun of itself at the same time, which doesn't feel great, you know, but again. Well, and something else that really took me back was that one of um, Florence's personalities is this young African-American woman, right? And so like we are shown a white woman like just slipping into this sort of like urban language. Right. So she goes into this personality that is like stereotypically like what we, Thank you. yeah, you would expect as a stereotypical black woman's voice and it just doesn't sit right. It doesn't feel right. It, it falls flat with my, you know, 2020 eyes and ears. And I'd never seen this movie before. And I was just like, what are they doing? You know, like, this is not like, <laughs> this is not cool. Like, it's not funny. Um, you know, and it was just, it was kind of amusing to, to think that that was something that they could, could do, I guess, but it wasn't, I don't know. Like, I don't have the benefit of having seen this in 2000, you know? And that's the thing is that like, I, I remember watching this movie in 2000, right. And not giving it a second thought, you know? And I, I think that like things like this, like the way that, you know, her, 
portrayal of that stereotypical black character was and the the way that they treated like the gay character and the, the gay characters in this movie were just sort of par for the course that's what we were given all the time in media right and watching it from a perspective of you know how i've changed over the last 20 years it's really like frightening to be that that was the only representation that we had as queer people and the fact that they could just play off like some sort of like african-american stereotype as a laugh you know and i i really don't think that if this movie were made today that either one of those things would fly especially coming from a writer that is queer you know it's it's reminds me of our conversation over on patreon when we covered suddenly last summer you know where you know like the writer and the the director or like the main actor you know it's like all gay and yet we come up with this like horribly negative thing and we we kind of um concluded that you know they were basically saying any display of this is better than no display of this and I don't know. I feel like the year 2000 is a little late for that, especially coming from a queer author, you know, where not only is the, you know, the gay guy is kind of the butt of the joke, almost, you know, literally. And then, you know, we get this kind of like racist or borderline racist things going on. It's just kind of disappointing. But again, maybe that was their thing. I, I We're going to make this movie and uh, this is what we can get away with. And, you know, any display is better than none. I don't know. And I will say too, I mean, like there's, there's been a lot of people who have gone back to watch some of the movies from that time period. Right. And maybe have found some like queer undertones in it, especially if you're talking about like gladiator movies and things like that, I think are famously ripped for having some sort of gay subtext or at least some gay visuals. Right. And if he's trying to, to parody that, you know, with like the wrestling scenes or whatnot, that's that's fine. But I like I don't remember a lot of beach movies having like underlying gay characters in them. It's just not something that I remember. And I've seen several of these movies. My father loves Gidget for some stupid reason. I don't know. But well, it's interesting because it's like all of that. The joke goes on those two guys where it's really still kind of ambiguous until the very end, but nothing like nothing is targeted towards his character who he wrote into the movie so that he could be in it, you know, um, the inspector, the, the captain or whatever. And it's, he's obviously a man, <laughs> even though he uses a, a naked female double in a sex scene, you know, it's, it's never mentioned. He's never the butt of a joke, maybe just in visual storytelling he is, but it's interesting that he's never is, but those two guys are, it, I don't know. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not going to psychoanalyze this. It's, it's really meant to be, you know, a parody spoof of these late 1950s, early 1960s movies. And, you know, we can leave it at that, but I think it feel like it's a little bit more than that. And that's why we're discussing it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, th- I think you have to, right. And so I, I, I kind of have a hard time like recommending this movie to, to watch to people now. Right. And that's a drastic change from in just 20 years, you know, when I was like, Oh my gosh, yeah. you have to watch psycho beach party. It's hilarious. Right. Well, you've, you put it on our docket for ever since we became a podcast, you wanted to cover this movie, you know, and when we were kind of excited about it and then we both watched it and you watched it again after having not seen it in so many years. And you're like, oh, I'm less excited about talking about this now. Yeah, I mean, because it is problematic, you know, and I I really want to pick a movie's especially during Pride Month, to talk about like really good representation of queer people in horror movies, horror cinema. And, you know, I through my like, you know, nostalgia lens, nostalgia boner of this movie, I was like, this is the one, you know, because it's so funny and there's a man playing a woman and things like that. But I mean, from a 2020 perspective, this movie is problematic when it comes to, you know, people of color and queer people and so i mean i think that putting this on the docket may have been a wrong choice you know and i'm not saying it's not a bad movie it has some merit well it certainly sparks you know some conversation which i think is worthwhile for sure but uh let's talk about some of the uh acting in this movie right some of the 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 different characters and different actors that we see in here for all the problems with the with the characterization of at least one of those personalities i thought uh, lauren lauren ambrose did a really excellent job as florence or chiclet forest or ann bowman whatever she's going by whatever personality it is (laughs) yeah all those names right (laughs) as opposed to almost everyone else in the in the whole movie you know like um i feel like the only other standout would probably be um, Amy Adams as Marvel Ann, you know, and I love the chick in the wheelchair, although she's a little anachronistic for the, for the, for the parody. Um, Yeah. You know, but 
I liked seeing familiar faces like from Buffy, Nicholas Brendan, you know, um, who played Stark Yacht. <laughs> but um, <laughs> he's Nicholas Brendan, you know, he couldn't do it. And then there's there's actually a lot of Buffy alums in here in this movie or people that were in other movies that had a lot of Buffy alums. There's like a lot of like fun facts around like the Buffy ties, but I decided not to include a fun facts section for this film. So we're just going to talk about this. <laughs> oh, that's, that's sad to me. We're not celebrating pride month very well with this movie. There are no fun facts and we just have problems with it, you know? <laughs> But I, I mean, I agree. I think that Lauren Ambrose did a really good job in this movie. And I know that we didn't talk about any accolades for this film because there weren't any aside from like a couple nominations and awards at like the film festival circuit. And I think a lot of that, you know, surrounded Lauren Ambrose. She also had a movie come out the same year that played film festivals called Swimming, which is a you know, a, a teen drama mm-hmm. dealing with some like queer aspects. And I think that she was getting a lot of recognition for that. And she would go on to, to do things like, um, uh, six feet under, which she was like, just fantastic in. But I think that, I mean, like she really carries this movie in a way and in a movie that finds it hard to nail its tone. I think that she sort of nailed its tone as an actress. You know, I think that she did a, a very impressive job. There was that scene where uh, Starcat is hypnotizing her and she's sort of like channeling through her different personas at a rapid pace, right? And I mean, I know that people acting in film have the opportunity to stop and have many, many takes and things like that. But she just like really did a fantastic job, you know, overall. And in that scene in particular, Mm -hmm. just switching from one thing to another, from an opera singer to doing like Spanish voice to whatever, you know? And so I, I think that she was great. The other standout to me, I think is Charles Bush. I think that he, also nailed a tone as a character yes. in his performance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I I think that Charles Bush would always do that no matter what he's in. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, I just really enjoy that character quite a bit. I think he gets like some of the best lines and of course he wrote it, you know, so of course he would, you know, Yeah, but I mean, I just, I really enjoy those two characters, those two performances. Other than that, I mean, I, I kind of like this movie as an homage to 1950s horror and 80s slashers, right? There's a whole lot going on in it that lends itself to that. So, I mean, we're talking about Bettina Barnes being an actress and her movies are sort of like schlocky, right? Like the three-headed pizza waitress movie mm-hmm. and like sex, sex kittens go bossa nova or whatever <laughs> that she's in that they talk about, right? And I mean, like just coming up with that kind of a title, Charles Bush deserves some sort of like recognition for thinking of that. And there's the character of Berdine, who is constantly talking about how Bettina Barnes's movies affect her on a deeper level, right? Which is, I think, a lot of horror fans do today. They will go back and look at movies from the 50s. You know, if there was like a Sex Kittens Go Bossa Nova, we would stop and be like, well, this movie, you know, speaks about this on an underlying level or whatever. And so, like, Verdine is like all the horror fans who like really read a whole bunch into horror. And so there's a lot in this movie to embrace for the horror community, I feel. Yeah. And also Beth Broderick, I think it's just great. I think she's great in everything that I see her in. I think it's something about her face. And she was the mother right? of um, Florence. Right. She plays Ruth Forrest, mm-hmm. right? And so like uh, Beth Broderick was also on like the original um, Sabrina the Teenage Witch series. And um, just, I mean, she, she looks so like like motherly. And then when she screams out something like, you motherfucking cocksuckers, you know what <laughs> I mean? It's just like, it's just that kind of face saying those lines delivered in such a way is funny. And I mean, for all of its problems, this movie does make me laugh. And um, I, th- I think more so back in 2000, less today. But it, that could just because, you know, I of all the problems that we've mentioned and the fact that I knew all the jokes were coming when I watched it too. Yeah. Well, since there are no fun facts about this movie, which also makes me sad, uh, I guess we'll just dive on into some questions. So were you scared watching psycho beach party? No, (laughs) no. (laughs) I mean, for all the wrong reasons we were scared, (laughs) we were scared for the people who made this movie back in 2000 and for the people who are going to watch it today, maybe. (laughs) But, uh, I mean, like with that being said, uh, do you think that psycho beach party is a horror movie? No. Yeah. (laughs) There was a time that I would squarely call this horror adjacent, but 
I don't. Well, it's different, anymore. you know, because it's uh, like scary movie. Is is scary movie a horror movie? It's parody of a horror movie, so it's definitely has you know familial ties to the horror genre. You know, if it didn't, we wouldn't be really covering it, right? So, uh, I think there's definitely ties there, but no, it's not a horror movie. It's a you know, it's a parody spoof. You know, uh, that lovingly pays some homage to, to horror movies and i would like to go back i need to i need to go back and listen to our episode on student bodies because i i forgot how we answered this question for student bodies did we call student bodies a horror movie no probably not <laughs> probably not i don't think so yeah i mean so yeah it's just there's a lot of homage going on and i mean clearly like there would be no psycho beach party if we didn't have movies you know like 80s slashers or these beach party movies or even like some psycho dramas that alfred hitchcock was making throughout the time so there is a lot of homage going on but i mean ultimately no this is not a horror movie Mm -mm. out of five stars what would you rate psycho beach party i gave it a two and a half i'm sorry you do not have to apologize. Never apologize for your review or rating of a movie. Well, you never want to shit on something that someone likes, especially when it's like your best friend, you know? Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> there are some people I'm sure listening to this podcast right now that love this movie, right? And back in 2000, 2001, when I saw it, I, you know, I did love it very much. And I probably would have given this a four to four and a half stars. But on this most recent watch, you know, we start to realize some problems, you know, both, you know, as a community that we are now or where we live in. And I had to drop that down a little bit and I would probably give this about three stars. Yeah. So I think that it's funny and I think that it's worth a watch just for the way that this man obviously loved some of the movies that he's parried. Parodying, parodying. Miami Strip. <laughs> <laughs> Keep all that in. Um, <coughs> but yeah, it's um, I don't know. It's problematic at best. So well, you know, I, I have to say, we brought all this stuff up for kind of the sake of discussion and conversation. You know, because those are the things that we noticed on this watch. But I would say, by and far, this movie is fairly innocent. You know, it's got its problems, and it's a product of its time, and you know, as long as we acknowledge them and discuss them and talk about them, I think the vast majority of this 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 movie is something that, you know, is not problematic. It's just parody, you know. And so watch it. You might really enjoy it. That's true. I don't want people to like listen to this and then go watch it and be like, how is this problematic? <laughs> you know, they're going to see the parts that we talked about, certainly as problematic. But that we're, you know, I don't want to give people the impression that this is, you know, two solid hours of problematic. No, there's just sprinkled in throughout <laughs> a light dusting, if you will. And I'm, I mean, like I said, it's still a very funny movie. Like I laughed. I know that you laughed a couple times, you know, I mean, there's some funny moments in it. And I think if you're a fan of like the 1950s horror films, 80s slasher movies or beach parties, I mean, like this is like the, the perfect movie for you to watch. I think you're gonna laugh your ass off, like for real. But uh, finally, and some would say most importantly, who is the hottest guy in Psycho Beach Party? I'm going to have to say Lars. Matt Kieslar. Matt Kieslar? Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's really dreamy. Um, I know that he's in like a lot of other things, right? Because he was pretty famous back in the late '90s, early 2000s. I know he's been in other horror. He movies. was in a bit part in Scream Three. Yeah, and that we was filming literally at the same time. Fun fact. <laughs> uh, for me, the hottest character in this movie, the hottest guy in this movie, is Provolone. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Provolone. I forgot those two guys were actually both. Both of those guys in the uh, in the the gay couple were pretty hot, actually. I have to say, I strike my answer. Are you talking about uh, Provolone and Yo Yo? Yeah, was the other one, them, right? Yeah. The two the two quote unquote gay yeah, guys, especially right? Yo Yo. I thought he was pretty hot. Yeah, I think we had that discussion like right after we watched the movie. Yeah, right. So like you like Yoga, who's played by Nick Cornish, and I think Provolone is super hot, and he's played by Andrew uh, Levitas. He's also in a queer horror movie called Hellbent, which I actually enjoyed more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i kind of like i kind of wish we were talking about helmet right now instead but you know what there are other pride months and so that can come up 
guys, I think that just about wraps up our conversation on Psycho Beach Party. If you've seen this movie or have thoughts about it, we would like to know what you think. Uh, reach out to us on social media at the Film Flamers on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, and you can find our ratings of this movie on Letterboxd. And you can email us at tiredqueens at filmflamers.com or call us on our hotline at 972 972- Six 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 seven seven three three. Let us know what you thought about this movie. We'll play it on the air and respond to it in the next Shooting the Flames episode. Also on Shooting the Flames, we like to call out our new patrons. So head over to patreon.com slash the filmflamers to find all of our bonus content and be able to get episodes early for as little as $2. This month we are doing a Flamers flashback to a movie that I watched a lot in high school and that is suddenly last summer from 1959 yeah and so i'll make sure that's released by the time this comes out so you can go over onto patreon and check that out and on shooting the flames we like to read reviews so if you're listening on apple podcast or itunes give us a five-star review write a little snippet about why you like us and we will read that on shooting the flames and if you would really like to help us out go over to the show notes of this episode and please click on that link and take our survey it only takes about a minute or less and uh, we're still taking those entries so please go ahead and just check those show notes click that link take that survey make us very very happy we're looking for ways to improve our podcast so we really trust your opinions as loyal listeners let your voice be heard in many ways well I think that just about ends uh, our pride month discussion on this you know horror movie <laughs> <I don't... laughs> yeah Sorry, guys. <laughs> That's okay. We have more content coming for you. Stay tuned in July because Chris and I are going to be covering some of our favorite horror movies Alien and Aliens. That's right. Sigourney fucking Weaver back in the house. <laughs> Hell yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> Game over, man. Game over. Get away from her, you bitch. They mostly come at night. Mostly. I was just about to say that. My God, that entire episode is going to be nothing but quips. Well, and we mostly come at night, so it's time for us to head on out and have some. <laughs> <laughs> What's the interesting segue? Sweet, Sweet dreams. dreams. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really proud of that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> 